Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their suffering perfect, uh, the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. Let's pray for the sermon. Almighty Father, we pray now that you would speak words of truth and goodness through me. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive those words of truth and goodness to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start with two confessions. Confession number one. There are a lot of important things that we are not going to talk about today, about the passage. Dirty secret, when I prepare sermons, usually I get going, I get fired up, and I've got like three or four sermons going. And at some point I have to decide, okay, we got to go with that one. There's a lot that I would love to talk about, important stuff. We're not going to talk. We're going to talk about one verse. Confession number two, occupational hazard. There are times as a pastor that you have to because the word kind of forces you to. You have to preach about something that you don't have much or any experience with. This is one of those days. C.S. Lewis, among his many books, wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in the preface, he acknowledges this feature of scholars and authors and writers as well. And he talks about how he begged the publishers to let him write that book anonymously because he didn't have the experience with pain and suffering. He had thoughts, he had words, but he didn't have the firsthand experience or the credibility, and the publisher said no. Interestingly, where we sit in history, he ended up having a lot of experience with pain and suffering. All right, so let's dive in to our one verse. Our one verse is verse 18. 
I'm going to read it again. Because he himself, that's Jesus, because he himself, Jesus, was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. All right, we've got to give a little background. We've got to situate this in the book, or at least the first couple chapters. First heading on your handout <laughs> states the obvious. Hebrews is a difficult book. We're not going to do a whole lot with it today, but let's just say this. It starts off difficult, and it doesn't get much easier. So here's, here's one thing that makes it difficult. The book starts like this. In chapter 1, before our passage, all these powerful scriptural arguments about why Jesus is superior to angels. And we read that and we're like, of course he is. Why are you arguing that? So there's stuff going on in the life of the community at this time that we can't fully appreciate. And that's one thing that makes it hard. By the way, I think there's a lot more going on there than Jesus being superior to angels. That's a nice teaser. Maybe we'll follow that up someday. So in chapter one, Jesus appeared to angels. The author, we don't know who it is, says some amazing things about Jesus. It's what scholars call high Christology, which means what? High, lofty, exalted conceptions, understandings of Jesus. He is God. And then we get to chapter 2. And it's fascinating. Right after saying all of those things, then the author talks about what? What scholars call low Christology. Jesus had flesh and blood. He suffered. In fact, he was made perfect through suffering, which should make us a little uncomfortable, maybe really uncomfortable. What? He wasn't already perfect. We can talk about that another day. And in the midst of this, we get what one scholar has called a brief pastoral note about, a pra- about the practical benefit of having Jesus as our high priest. And that's verse 18. See, the point, this isn't, this isn't integral to what is being said. It's a side note. It's like, oh, and by the way, because Jesus is human, Here's something that's great about that. And we get verse 18. The problem is this brief pastoral note is actually really hard to understand. And there are at least three reasons why it's really hard to understand verse 18. First, you have to do with translation. So there's this Greek verb, peradzo. And it can be translated in two different ways. And you see both in English translations of our verse and throughout the New Testament. It can mean to tempt, like the devil tempted Jesus. It's peirazzo. It can mean to test, like you are being tested through trying times and ordeals. That's also peirazzo. What's the difference between those two things? Well, there is. I think, in some cases, a meaningful difference. Tempting has to do with what? Inducement to sin. Testing doesn't necessarily have to do with that. It can just have to do with endurance. So the first problem we have is, is Jesus being 
tempted here or tested? And are we being tempted or tested? Look at our verse again. It appears twice. That's one problem. Second problem, also a translation issue. There are very different ways that English translations understand the first part of our verse. Look at your handout. I've listed our options. Option one is the RSV, Revised Standard Version. That says, For because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So suffering, temptation, or testing, they're just two things coordinated with an and. Both of them are true of Jesus. Another way you might translate the same phrase is the ESV, and the NIV works the same way, and it works like this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. So there, there's some tighter coordination. There's a relationship between the suffering and the temptation. Jesus was tempted in such a way that it caused him suffering. That's a different understanding of the way the two words work together. Third way is what I read today, the NRSV. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered. In other words, the relationship is logically flipped between suffering and testing or tempting. Jesus suffered. And that suffering caused some sort of temptation or testing. So which is the best translation? How would we answer that? Well, I think what we'd have to do is you'd have to look at the way that tempting or testing works in the letter, in, in terms of Jesus, in terms of us, other things that are said about tempting or testing. And then you also want to look at how suffering works in the letter. This would be one way to go about it. And there's a lot about both of those things. And I've put on your handout one of the main ways that testing and tempting seems to work in the letter. And that main way is this language of drifting away or not holding firm or falling off. In other words, there's something about this audience that's tempted to what? Turn away from the faith? Turn their backs on Jesus? Turn away from their community? Maybe go back to their Jewish synagogue? That's what a lot of scholars think. Okay, so that's one way that temptation and testing works. There's also talk about being tempted or tested towards sin. Being tempted towards sin. There's that language too. There's a lot of suffering going on in this community. We learn in the two passages I put down on your handout from chapter 10 and chapter 11 that this group of people that the letter is written to has been publicly exposed to abuse and persecution. This is interesting. We learn that they've had their possessions plundered. Whatever that means. We learn that they have endured 
trials, although we aren't told exactly what kind of trials those are. We are told that they have, oh, this is such a sad expression. They have drooping hands and weak knees. They need endurance so that they don't give up, so that they press forward in faith, even when they can't see how it's going to turn out. That's kind of what chapter 11 is doing. You remember chapter 11, famous chapter, faith chapter? By faith, by faith, by faith, all these heroes of the faith. That's the encouragement they need because they need faith when it looks like things are falling apart. So we've got the temptation to fall away. We've got suffering as a cause of that temptation. I don't know exactly how to translate Peirazzo here. I don't know exactly how to translate our phrase here. But I think that's okay. I think here's what we can say confidently, and it's enough for us today. There's some kind of relationship here in this verse and in the letter broadly between suffering and temptation or testing. There's some kind of relationship. And think about it, both are true in our lives. When we suffer, we're tempted, like this people was, to fall away. We're tempted to turn away. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to believe what our eyes see instead of what our hearts tell us is possible. That is the temptation in suffering. Again, C.S. Lewis, this time from his book, A Grief Observed, which I reread yesterday, and it is heart-wrenching and inspiring all at once. You know this book? This is the book he keeps a journal, set of journals, after his wife dies of cancer. He sort of wants to chart his grief. And early on in that process, he writes this. But go to him, he's talking about God. Go to him when your need is desperate, when all their help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. That's the temptation in the face of deep, deep suffering. And it's happened to a lot of people. Spoiler, he doesn't turn away. Things change over the course of the book. So suffering can cause temptation. And the reverse is also true. Temptation can cause suffering. We read in chapter 12, verse 4, and I don't know what to make of this. The author says to the audience, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What? There is some tight relationship between suffering and being tempted. So, what is verse 18 saying about that? What is verse 18 claiming? How does the fact that Jesus suffered, the fact that Jesus was tempted, how does that help us with suffering? 
It's a hard question. How does that help us? In other words, what, couldn't he have helped us if he hadn't suffered? If he hadn't been incarnated, couldn't he still be present with us spiritually? Couldn't he still be in our midst? Why does him suffering matter for our suffering? To answer this, I want to start with what I called a social problem. I didn't know what to call this. I could have called it a social problem, a relational problem, a pastoral problem. Here's the problem. Romans 12, 15 says this, famous verse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It doesn't say give good, sound, spiritual advice to those who are weeping. Who is that? Job's friends. Well, except for the sound part. But you see what I mean? When we enter into this territory talking about suffering so intense that it could cause you to fall away from faith, I get really uncomfortable. I get really uncomfortable about saying just about anything because I think there's great wisdom in weeping with those who weep instead of trying to what? Counsel or fix those who weep. To deepen this problem, I gave a sermon earlier this year on, in part, a book by a woman named Kate Bowler that I knew at Duke who had suffered intensely from stage four cancer. And she wrote a book. Her book was amazing. It was kind of like C.S. Lewis's chronicling his grief. She was chronicling her suffering and her pain and what she was learning. And one of the things that I said during that sermon, I would reiterate now, is she counsels very, very, very strongly against the people that want to enter into situations of suffering and fix it with a wonderful, rightly motivated, spiritual fix instead of first sitting and weeping with her. C.S. Lewis says the same thing in A Grief Observed. He calls these people the spiritualists. Lastly, there's this term that I've put on your handout, which I think is incredibly convicting for the way that I often flub things up in my relationships. It's called conversational narcissism. It's a term that was coined by the sociologist Charles Derber. I highly recommend the article that I've put down here from a woman on HuffPost who writes about this term and how it works and how it plays out in her life. And the idea is this, conversational narcissism. She tells a story, this woman, uh, Celeste Headley. A few years back, one of her friends had lost her father, went outside and was crying on a bench outside of work. And what did she do? She went and she sat with her. And she wanted to comfort her. She said something along the lines of, you know, I know what you're going through. My dad died when I was nine months old, drowned in a submarine accident. Started to talk, trying to empathize, trying to relate. And her friend was so angry and turned off and said, oh yeah, I know, you have it worse than me. At least I got my dad for 30 years. And she was taken aback until she started to think about and explore the way that conversational narcissism works. And the idea of conversational narcissism, which I am all too prone to, is in the name of trying to empathize, you turn things back and make it about yourself. 
instead of the person who's suffering. You make it about you. Oh, well, look at my pr problem. Yeah, but they, they don't want to think about that or talk about that. They want to deal with the grief that they are experiencing, conversational narcissism. All of this is by way of what? Caution? Preface? to what I think we have to say and should say about Hebrews 2.18. So here's my proposal. Let me read the verse again, Hebrews 2.18. Because he himself, Jesus, was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. And my question is, what in the world does that mean? Number one, I don't think it means that Jesus is just an example of what it looks like to do suffering well, to do it righteously and faithfully and not turn away. I don't think it means Jesus is just an example of that. Now, I do think that's part of it. That may be more controversial than you realize. There is a strain a pretty prominent strain among what? Current Christian pastors, thinkers, scholars that really hate the idea of Jesus being an example. They think two things. One, that sort of cheapens Jesus' work in a way. He's much more than an example. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But that doesn't mean he's not an example, in part. The other thing that this group of folks that hate example language pick up very strongly is, and I confess to you, I don't quite understand this, but it's this, this, this impulse that says effort in the Christian life is bad. Effort is Pelagian. Effort is trying to earn your salvation. Effort is what legalistic religions do. We are all about grace, and because we love grace so much and appreciate God's grace so much, we should not put forth any effort, because if we do, we are trying to earn our way to heaven. I confess I don't really understand that way of thinking. Anything that's worth anything in life, in my humble opinion, to paint with a broad brush, requires a lot of work and effort and practice and development. And I think the same is true of our Christian lives as well. That doesn't mean you're trying to earn anything. I digress. Examples are part of the biblical witness for us. 1 Peter 2.21 reads like this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you should follow in his steps. Christ is an example. Examples are kind of wonderful, I think. Now, again, I'm not saying that's all Jesus is, but I think they're kind of wonderful. Let me give you a couple examples. I think examples work in a couple of ways for us. Examples work in a couple of ways. Examples of people living out their faith, of people doing things, of people, whether it's Jesus or other Christians, example, we might call it role models. Examples expand our imagination about what is possible. 
when I was in eighth grade, we ran the mile every Friday for the year. And then we had our final exam at the end of the year where we got to run the mile and we were timed and we see how much we'd improved our time. I had never broken six minutes. I don't even know if I'd broken seven minutes. I wasn't very fast. And I ran that mile during third period and I got 5.48. And my mistake was I told my best friend who had PE in seventh period that I got 5.48. And I kid you not, my best friend, who also I don't think had ever broke seven minutes, got 5.47. <laughs> Examples of people doing amazing things open up our eyes to what's possible in a great way. In fact, I think Hebrews 11, as I said a minute ago, works exactly like this. You need some encouragement about people who did things that were amazing when it didn't look like it would have any sort of results? Look at Abraham. Look at Moses. Look at David. I mean, it lists examples to lift your eyes and your heart and your mind. Here's another thing examples do for us. Examples can, at times helpfully relativize our suffering and give us a proper perspective on what's happening. I've shared this story before. In my third year of law school, I had accepted an offer to work for a big firm downtown. And I was going to do litigation. I was going to be a courtroom lawyer and I was going to argue cases in court. And I had decided over the course of my third year of law school that I didn't feel comfortable doing that ethically for reasons we can discuss at a different time. And I remember having to go down on the red line to tell the managing partner who was also the person I did my work for who had hired me for that position that I didn't feel comfortably ethically with doing this position. I was terrified. In fact, I was so terrified, I don't, I don't think I could have actually gone through with the conversation. I felt I owed it to him. Didn't want to just send an email, but I just, I was about to get off and say, ah, I'll just go back and send an email. Put my head down and I was praying and I was praying and I was praying and I was praying one of those desperate prayers. And I looked up and I was at Charles MGH. Right across, exactly across, seated from me was this boy, this Chinese boy, who was badly burned. His whole face, his hands, everything, very badly burned. And I knew exactly who it was. Quincy had a friend, went to a church. They had sponsored a boy from China. And they were paying for him to come to MGH to have skin graft procedures. I'd never met him. I'd never seen him. And I looked up, and there he was. And he was laughing. And I thought, if he can laugh, I can have this conversation. Examples of people suffering boldly, bravely, righteously like Jesus did can impact us. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it than just an example. So here's where we'll end. Here's the more to it. I think the fact that Jesus suffered 
allows for two things for us. The first is such a strange phenomenon, if you think about it. I called it solidarity. And the more I thought about it this week, the less sense it made to me. It makes no sense. Solidarity. The fact that I could sit in a room, sit across from someone else who has suffered in some way like I have, should not make me feel better. Right? Isn't it strange? The fact that you've gone through what I've gone through should make me sadder. But it doesn't. In some way, solidarity, being through, having gone through the same thing that someone else went through, instantly and mysteriously knits us together in some profound way. It gives a certain credibility, a certain relational, I don't know, ability to connect that we wouldn't otherwise have. Here's how I think of solidarity. When I had my stent placed in my heart three years ago, told you that story several times when I had my heart issues and one of my arteries was 99% blocked. I ended up on the operating table. They put a stent, they put a tube so that the blood would flow through. I had to do cardiac rehab for three months after that. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you go to this place and you do stretching and you do exercise and there are trainers and they take your blood pressure. It's a group of people, cardiac rehab patients. I had solidarity with those people. I was the youngest person by 30 years but those were my people. Like instantly, those were my people. There was one Friday where the instructors didn't come into the room. And we waited and we waited and we waited and we whispered and we looked at our watch and we, they didn't come. Finally, 20 minutes later, an instructor comes in, breathless and apologetic and says, I'm so sorry. There was a, a, a person in the gym, on the floor, that collapsed and passed out. And because us as teachers, we have medical training, we had to attend to them and help them and wait for the ambulance to arrive. We're so sorry that you had to wait this 20 minutes for your class to start. But me and my people, we were knit together. We were on the same page. We were like, is he okay? All of us, that was our impulse. Because we related to the man passing out on the floor. That was Friday. Monday comes around. Class starts as usual. Okay, let's do our stretching. Someone raises their hand immediately and says, what happened to the guy from Friday? The trainer says, the most amazing thing. I don't know all the details, but that person didn't have to stay in the hospital. They weren't admitted. It ended up being sort of a false alarm. It was okay. It wasn't a big problem. And they're actually here working out again today. And the class of about 20 people all applauded at the exact same time without any prompting. I didn't applaud because that person was applauding or that person. We just were knit together in solidarity. We appreciated life because we had been through this experience where life could not be taken for granted. There is something about Jesus's suffering that gives him solidarity with whatever we might suffer. You ever think about how much Jesus suffered? You hear that term. I was thinking about this this week. Can Jesus relate to your suffering? He suffered a lot. He was what? constantly schemed against and opposed 
by people like the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, and scribes. He was constantly misunderstood by his friends. His family, remember this, called him crazy. His hometown, remember this, rejected him, wanted to run and throw him off a cliff. One of his best friends dies of an illness. Now, he did raise him up, but still. <laughs> what else? He's falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned, tortured, so scared of what he knows is going to happen to him that what, he um, may sweat blood? depending on how you read that verse. He's wrongfully killed. He's abandoned by all his friends. And worst of all, on the cross, the Son of God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can Jesus relate in solidarity to the deepest sufferings you have? Yes. Yeah, he can. The second thing, besides solidarity, is what I just called real presence. I want to read you two verses that I think are remarkable. The second part of Matthew 6, verse 8 says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Romans 8, 26 says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. That's presence. Someone that is not only with you, as we say in this season, Emmanuel, with you closer than you are to yourself in some way. Knows what you need before you ask it. Knows how to ask for what you want when you don't even know what you want. That's real presence. So why, can't, why is it the case that some people don't find that? If you read the literature on suffering, if you've lived through any suffering, if you've had anyone die that you're close to, you realize this fact. Grief or suffering tends to do one of two things. It tends to draw people closer to God or push them further away. Why the difference? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But all I can say is this. What do we do with the difference? I think we can do something. I think that we can pray for the person suffering. We can bring them to Jesus. I love Mark chapter 2 where the four friends dig the hole in the roof and lower their paralyzed friend to be healed by Jesus. And the text says when he saw their faith, he said, son, your, son, your sins are forgiven. So all I can say is I don't know why some people are driven further away from God. I and mean, there are no guarantees. 
But what we can do <clears throat> is we can exercise faith for someone when they don't have it themselves. We can pray for them. Here's a way to pray for them. I shared this when I came back from ACM. Pastor was talking about how when people suffer, early in his career as a pastor, he would knee-jerk want to pray, Lord, let them be healed. Heal them. Take this away. Take the suffering away. After a while, a decade or so, his prayers changed. He still thought that was a good impulse and still prayed that way. But now his primary prayer was, Lord, be with them in their suffering. After another decade or so, his prayer changed yet again. And he realized that the Lord is already with them in their suffering. He said, Lord, open their eyes so that they can see that. There are two things as a pastor that I say that terrify me. The first I say every week. When we do communion as we will do in a minute, and I say, your sins are forgiven. That is terrifying. I better be right about that. You ever think about that? It's a bold claim to make when people are living their lives. Your sins are forgiven. Because if they're not, I'm doing you a big disservice. You should rightly have some terror as a pastor when you say those words. The second thing I say that terrifies me is when I have someone in my office or I'm at coffee and I say something like, you're going to have to trust God for that. See, it's easy. It's easy to be able to fix people's problems, to serve them, to drive them places, to help them, to pick them up, to do things for them. That's the easy part of being a pastor. The hard part is when you can't fix it. The hard part is when you have to say to someone, look them in the eyes, and they're suffering, and they have a problem that you can't solve, and they need it solved, and say, you have to trust God, and he will answer your prayer. He will provide for you. I don't know how he will, but you have to trust that he will. That is a terrifying thing to say. But that is what we have to say in the face of someone that's suffering. Jesus is already with them. Last point, I said, with time, Jesus can heal. The time element's important. This goes back to the social problem thing I said earlier. In A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis makes a series of remarkable observations that are really useful if you have someone in your life that's suffering. One of the things he says is he looks back later, after he's sort of come out of the dark, dark, dark part of his suffering. And he says that he was like a man with a concussion right after his wife had died. He said, you can't see anything properly while your eyes are blurred with tears. He said, sorrow turns out to be not a state, but a process. It needs not a map, but a history. 
So there is time involved. There is time of waiting, of patience, of weeping with those who weep, of praying, of putting them into Jesus's hands. But despite all the things I said that I'm worried about the social problem, about not wanting to be the spiritualist, about not wanting to be the person that Kate Bowler hates, about not wanting to be the person that C.S. Lewis hated, I still think we do have to proclaim, and we look at a verse like today, that Jesus is with us in our darkest hour. And Jesus can, in fact, heal us. He can relate to, in solidarity, anything we might feel. And that should give us freedom to be able to give that into his hands. Amen.